Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A warning, this series contains discussions of themes that might be distressing for some listeners. Kia ora, I'm Melanie Reid, Newsroom's Investigations Editor. Welcome to this bonus episode of Peter Eller's The Crash Case and Me, The Law Society Address. I was invited to give the keynote speech at the annual New Zealand Law Society Southland Otago Conference. So we are bringing you that speech direct from the Ascot Park Hotel in Invercargill at the very bottom of the South Island. My subject was, of course, our series Peter Eller's The Crash Case and Me. As listeners know, the legal aspects of this case had far-reaching ramifications. One of those we covered in our last bonus episode about whether Peter Ellis's family should receive an apology and compensation from the government. Since the end of 2023, we have repeatedly approached the new Minister of Justice, Paul Goldsmith, and put to him three questions. One, what is the minister's reaction to the fact Peter Ellis's family has not received an apology from the government more than a year after the Supreme Court finding? Two, what is the process for Peter Ellis's family to facilitate compensation? And finally, as the current Minister of Justice, is Mr Goldsmith going to formally apologise to Peter Ellis's family? If not... Why not? His initial response was, I intend to be briefed on this in the coming weeks. Three weeks later, we again asked for his response. We received no response. So we left it another three weeks before we went back again. Six weeks seems a reasonable amount of time. His response this time was the following. No decisions have been made as I am still being advised by the Ministry of Justice officials. I will provide an update when there is one available. Is that good enough? In our view, it's not. It's a fail. We'll keep you updated on this. But now, my speech to a room full of lawyers. I hope you enjoy the live recording. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak here today. Last year, we made an eight-part TV series and podcast using the beta camera tapes and interviews that I filmed during the early 90s when the crash case, as it became known, was in full swing. I rescued the tapes out of a skip bin in the dark basement of TV3 in about 2012. I borrowed a ute, backed it into the loading bay and chucked a heap of tapes on the back tray. In the brave new world of digital TV, They didn't need or want stacks of shit-old interviews. I'd done with the likes of David Bain, Peter Ellis, Gay Oakes, Vicky Calder, to name a few. 
The TV station had the 15-minute versions condensed tight and bright, which had been taken from all those hours and hours of interviews, like Peter, many I had done. It was the one time in my life I applauded myself for being a hoarder. So throughout my talk today with you, I'm going to play a number of clips from our series. If I can just be a little bit self-indulgent for a moment, before I play you the videos, I want to say it is not easy growing up on TV. Anyway, that's what happens when you cover a story for 30 years. I kind of know what Peter Ellis would say if he knew I was standing up in front of a bunch of lawyers. He'd say, are any of them hot? <laughs> he would actually say that. But on a serious note, he'd say, did anyone learn anything from my case? I'm just going to start with the first part of the series so we can get into the swing of things and get back into 1990s mode. The 10-year sentence was greeted with a great deal of satisfaction by parents and police. The 12-member panel convicted Ellis on 16 of the 25 charges he faced. We're very shocked and I think it's very unfair, but that's all we want to say. We will fight as a family to get him released to in jail. What was it like for you hearing his sentence this morning? I prayed. I was the only journalist that Peter Ellis spoke to during the time that he was charged and all the hoopla was going on. And I've often been asked, why did he talk only to me? I like the idea that he was an extremely good judge of character. But the fact that he taught me to drink sherry and we were both incredibly enthusiastic cigarette smokers probably helped. But he also believed me when I said I'd fight for him and I'd do everything I could if things happen to turn pear-shaped. And so here I am 30 years later. About four years after he was convicted, we did a big story which essentially got his case uh, back once more to the Court of Appeal. I felt like every few years I went in for the scrap of my life doing yet another story in the hope that common sense would prevail, but it just never did. And I was too young at the time, or not wise enough, to figure it out. I couldn't understand why something so ridiculous couldn't be fixed. I believed in justice. I really believed that once everyone figured out it was the wrong call, it would be sorted out. But the more we proved, the more the establishment, the police, the courts, the ministers dug their heels in. And I felt like I was wading through a swamp of brickhead, dickhead dumbos. Not only did they not want to see the obvious, they didn't even want to look. They had created a no-win situation. Every time we got close, those holding power would look like they were doing something. Publicly engage, there'd be a media story or two. Poor old Mrs Alice once again appeared in her twin set and pearls, putting on a brave face. But really, those holding power made it impossible for Peter. I can look back now and realise what I didn't realise then. I was either not smart enough or not cynical enough because everyone everywhere was invested in this guilt. The police, the courts, social welfare, ACC, the education department, the council, the sexual abuse industry, and believe me, there was a thriving one around the crash case. It was too hot to touch, and that being the case, no one touched it, just like no one wants to kick a big lead ball because you'll break your foot, in this case, jeopardise your career. Just the usual then, delay and deny until they die. That was actually a phrase we turned when we were fighting the effects of the manufacture of Agent Orange in Paritutu, New Plymouth. So in Peter's case, it just felt like the same old. Let's just hope the collective delusion collusion will pass 
And if you let three decades go by, maybe we can sort it out then, sometime in the future when the judges are dead and none of the judiciary will be offended and most importantly it's forgotten and it's no longer relevant and the media coverage will be minimal. So too will the reputational damage of the justice system. What has been a mashup of collective delusion and a vicious cycle of false reassurance became, as the decades rolled on, a shameful episode and a national embarrassment. I hope by keeping the tapes and making the series and telling Peter's story inch by inch, we can take a pretty serious look at ourselves, both then and now. Just to start off with, Peter, how has your life changed since the arrest? Since my arrest last year. Hold still, I've got to think about this for a moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should have realised you were... I was 27 when I interviewed Peter Ellis. He was 34. <laughs> it wasn't quite... Do you want me to start off with something else? Yeah. It's just sort of like I thought it'd be good to talk about, you know, what, what you've sort of been through and stuff to start with. During the weekdays, Peter Ellis was in court, but on Sunday afternoons, early in 1993, we did a series of interviews at sad motels on the outskirts of Christchurch. They were top secret. We made sure no one saw us. Such was the climate of panic due to the hysteria and hostility that surrounded the case. Peter had already had a bullet sent to him in the mail and had been assaulted by four men. And they hit you? They hit me, yep. How many times? Oh, numerous. I mean, I had um, uh, bruising on my back, my legs. I had grazing cuts to my hand and arm. I cut across my nose, um, the whole of the back of my head. And, yeah, I mean, I was knocked from pillar to post. What did they want? I hate using the word kid fucker. And that's what he said when he came through with his bit of wood and banged me. So a bullet arrived with your name engraved on it? With my name engraved on it. And I was sort of trying to think, which of the parents could do this? I mean, yeah, all right, I came out with a couple that have since really uh, lost it. I mean, not without cause. I mean, the children have been put through an awful lot of things, but not by us, not by the civic crash. Nothing happened to those children at that crash or anywhere else by any staff member. But what's happened to them through social workers, through the police, and it's just continual being questioned. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm harking back to the fact of the matter is uh, I know I'm innocent. And again, naive, I suppose. Everyone's going to eventually rationalise this somehow. I mean, and I hope they do. <laughs> and that was during an interview in, in 1993. He thought it was going to be sorted out at the trial, that everyone would come to their senses and figure out that what was truly going on here was a kind of deluded madness. But to understand how one of New Zealand's most controversial legal cases began, we need to go back to the spring of 1991. Christchurch was hosting a family violence conference that included ritual abuse workshops, and the media and the public were being fed some disturbing messages as a result that there was evidence of satanic cults, that children are having to endure severe and bizarre physical and sexual torture. There was this sense, in hindsight at least, of a gathering storm that Peter Ellis and his co-workers were completely oblivious to that would become known as satanic panic. New Zealand's establishment city was about to be consumed by something unholy and unthinkable. The large-scale sexual abuse panic that had been sweeping the world landed in central Christchurch. Something bordering hysteria took over the city. Author Lindley Hood described it as a city possessed. It was a fairly overheated climate that took just one allegation, 
like a match to a tinder-dry landscape, and off it went. The history of ritual satanic abuse is a complex and controversial topic. It emerged as a concept in the 1980s and 90s, primarily in the United States and the United Kingdom. The allegations generally involved claims of organised, secretive cults engaging in horrific rituals that included satanic worship, sexual abuse and even human sacrifice. The satanic panic, as became known, has been widely criticised and is now considered a moral panic that caused significant harm to individuals, children, families and communities. It highlighted the importance of critical thinking, perhaps the importance of rational thinking and evidence-based investigations. Back though to Christchurch in November 1991 and how it all played out, I'm going to spend a bit of time on this so you understand exactly how it all started. So it was soon after the ritual abuse workshops in Christchurch, a child said to his mother, I don't like Peter's black penis. The mother believed her son's remark was a revelation of sexual abuse. In an interview, Peter said to me, I literally can't come up with an answer for why that child's going on about a black penis. I mean, I'm Caucasian. The boy's mother was by all accounts predisposed to view her son's remarks in a certain way. I'll refer to her as mother one. Peter was certainly of the opinion that she was irrational, obsessed and dangerous. This mother not only believed Peter Ellis had abused her son, she went on to make allegations against other male creche workers at other creches, believing they too had abused her son. And years before the creche case even began, she had collated a book which warned about the epidemic of child abuse, an epidemic she found at the Christchurch Civic Creche. So it all began when she sent a four-page letter accusing Peter of molesting her son. Creche supervisor Gay Davidson immediately sought advice from the creche owners, the city council. By the time Peter and Gay Davidson were called into the council, the allegations had begun to spread around. When this letter was handed over to him about the child saying he was frightened of his black penis, Peter just had no idea what to say or do because it was so ridiculous. And he didn't even consider getting a lawyer because he thought, what a load of hoo-ha. This is all going to be dealt with. He would quite simply see the parents and say, look, I don't know what you're talking about. And it was another creche staff member who said, look, Peter, I think this is serious. You're going to have to get a lawyer. But Peter was like, why? Why do I need a lawyer? It's not true. Peter was suspended and put on indefinite leave, and then he advised the council if there was no complaint laid with the police, he wanted to be reinstated as soon as possible. By then, Mother One's son had attended his first social welfare specialist disclosure interview, and there was no disclosure of sexual abuse. Not then, not ever. However, Mother One's complaint had activated Detective Colin Ede from the Police Child Abuse Unit in Christchurch. So even though there'd been no disclosure of sexual abuse, Detective Colin Ede took it upon himself to advise the council's personnel officer that he believed he was on to something big. If I can just jump forward a bit for a moment. Peter loved animals. He had cats and dogs and rabbits and birds and guinea pigs. So many animals. Anyway, when his sausage dog had puppies, he called one of them Edie, after Detective Colonnade. I said, why did you do that, Peter? He said, because she's such a little bitch. <laughs> anyway, in December 1991, remember, Detective Eve was onto something big. So on his advice, an urgent meeting was planned to advise all creche parents that a staff member was under suspicion. Even though there had been no disclosure from the one boy whose mother had complained. On the morning before that meeting, the Christchurch Press ran a front page story saying a creche worker has been suspended after the allegation a child has been sexually abused. That evening the parents crowded into the meeting hall, waiting in horror to hear the worst. The panic was setting in. At that meeting, the Christchurch City Council, the creche owners, agreed to provide counselling for distraught parents, 
a support group was set up, even though at this stage there had been no formal disclosures, no proof whatsoever of sexual abuse. No proof, but some parents were of the opinion that abuse at the creche was widespread. Some of them were members of the recently formed support group. So another three children had social welfare specialist interviews. Once again, none of them disclosed any sexual abuse. At this point, Colonnade had to advise the City Council and all concerns that the police investigation was closed. But he went on to tell the City Council it was clear to him Peter Ellis, probably because he was gay, should not be involved in any way in the supervision or care of children, even though at this point in time he'd never met Alice, he'd never even been to the crash. So two days before Christmas 1991, Peter Alice was advised he was being dismissed. But Peter loved his job and he was not about to fold. There was no disclosure of sexual abuse, so he asked for his job back but he wasn't allowed it. He was offered a voluntary severance payment of $10,000, a considerable sum in the early 90s. But he refused and told them, I don't want your money. This is a matter of principle. In an interview, he said to me, it was almost like I pushed the start button for the whole case to start rolling again. It's like I turned around and said, look, I haven't done anything. I want my job back. And the answer suddenly was, oh, let's go and round up some more. So the perfect storm was gathering. Peter was feeling insulted and confident he was in the right, but his accusers are also feeling aggrieved and there is no way in hell that either side is backing down. It's quite possible that had Peter taken the money and faded from the scene, there would never have been what we know now as the Christchurch Civic Crash Case. In early 1992, the creche reopened for the year. There had still not been a single disclosure of sexual abuse, so the staff were optimistic Peter would be coming back to work, but instead the council followed through with its plan and sacked him. While he was considering an employment case, a six-year-old girl who had never attended the creche made the first formal disclosure. This girl's mother, who we'll call Mother Two, was part of the parent support group. She was a social worker and had organised the parents' meetings. Her daughter, who had never attended the creche, said that the bad touching by Alice happened when she went with her parents to pick up her younger brothers. Jumping forward, in the end, that complaint never actually went anywhere because Detective Colony tried to shag the girl's mother. There'll be more on that later. Back at the time, though, a disclosure from a child who had never attended the crash, it was disturbing stuff. It was the first formal evidence against Peter Ellis, and it was the turning point. In the weeks that followed, another woman from the support group made a formal statement to Colonnade about her preschool-aged daughter who'd been at the creche. On the same day he received that statement, he advised the creche committee and the city council that the police investigation into the creche case was reopened. By now, a core group of parents, who by their own admissions had begun direct questioning their children, something they'd been warned against doing, in the following weeks, three more children disclosed. As anxiety grew, a second meeting was arranged for all the parents whose children had been to the creche in the five and a half years Peter Ellis had worked there. A week before that second parents' meeting was due to take place, the whole country would hear that something shocking appeared to be happening with children at the Christchurch Civic Creche when the head child psychologist, Karen Zelis, appeared on the TV current affairs show, Hopes. She talked at length about specialist interviewers being set up to interview all of these affected children. That's how she spoke, by the way. So all the media hype before the second meeting, and what is more extraordinary at this stage is that Peter Ellis had never even been spoken to by police. He had no contact with police until the day he was arrested, his birthday. 
which just happened to be on the eve of the big parents meeting. So by the time the mums and dads filed into the second parents meeting in March of 1992, Peter had been locked up overnight, charged with indecently assaulting the girl who had never attended the crash, and by God the stage was set. About 200 parents poured into that meeting. They were encouraged to take their children to specialist interviews, advised on the behavioural signs of sexual abuse, cautioned not to directly question their children, given information on counselling and ACC procedures. Hotlines were set up, pamphlets were handed out. The Christchurch civic crash case was well underway. They were saying that hundreds of children had possibly been abused. They were saying that this was the biggest thing ever in New Zealand. They were saying that, that children who were showing no signs of being abused had been abused and were disclosing. Rob Harrison, Alice's lawyer, once famously said of the parents' meeting, it's like a ministry of works lure. You light a stick of jelly, you toss it in the river, it explodes. Down below, you've got all these nets. The fish just come floating down to you. Peter Ellis had something else not in his favour. He was gay. The Homosexual Law Reform Bill had only just passed a few years earlier. The decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1986 was a significant milestone in the fight for gay rights. However, it did not instantly erase the deep-seated fear and prejudice that had been ingrained in society for decades, especially in Christchurch. And when it came to the media portrayal, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, flamboyant, by the way, was the code word for gay. Peter being gay influenced the way the media reported this case. His sexuality underpinned all aspects of the reporting, including my own. You are a bit different though, aren't you? There's all these trite little words like heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, asexual. I suppose it would fit into bisexual. Um, it gives me a perspective on a different outlook on sex than, say, it's just an ordinary heterosexual, straight heterosexual person. Um, I associate... I get on better with women. Um, I feel more comfortable in the company of women. Um, but I seem to end up sleeping with men. Peter was constantly referred to as an openly gay childcare worker. Not a childcare worker, not a childcare worker who was gay, but an openly gay childcare worker. I asked him a lot of cringe-worthy questions back then about sex, about being gay, which he always handled in a typically Peter way, unashamedly himself. Do you think the fact that you are gay and quite obviously gay, I don't want you to take that the wrong way. But do you think that you're an easy target? Look at it from a public perspective. From a public... It depends on, on, on people's attitudes. I mean, nowadays people's attitudes towards gay people are changing. Um, it's slow, but they are changing. Uh, they're realising that... that um, that what happens in the bedroom doesn't affect your work or your job or um, how you relate to other people. People nowadays are coping with the idea that, that really they aren't that different bar from that one point. I mean, some people are never going to believe it. I mean, whether they be Christians or whether the, uh, how they've been brought up, they, they, they are not going to be able to cope with gay people. Hey, look, being gay was one thing, but when it was discovered Peter was actually bisexual, not just gay, hell really did break loose because it meant the number of kids he'd abused had doubled. It wasn't just boys, it was boys and girls. Now, if this case wasn't already strange enough, it was about to get even stranger. 
three women crèche workers were jointly charged with Peter over what became known as the Circle Incident. Gay Davidson, a 39-year-old mother of two, had worked at the crèche for eight years, the last four as supervisor. 44-year-old Marie Keyes was assistant supervisor, a former president of the Plunkett Society. Janice Buckingham, also 44, worked at the crèche for eight years, all mothers. Police alleged that the children were taken to a city address that had hidden cupboards and a trapdoor. The children made to stand naked in a circle with cans around their necks and kick each other in the genitals. The fourth woman crèche worker, Debbie Gillespie, was accused of having sex with Peter Alice in the crèche toilets and indecently assaulting a child. In an interview with Marie Keyes, one of the crèche workers, she said, they thought that this could have happened and did happen, that we put children in cages, put them in ovens, took them away to the Park Royal to be photographed by Asian business people, that Gay, Jan and I had sex together just to entertain the children, to make them laugh. We pretended to sex together to make them laugh. At the time, it was well known that the police wanted to arrest more women crèche workers and even Peter Ellis's mother. You see, the police and therapists were convinced Peter was an abuser and that being the case, he couldn't possibly have acted alone. At the time, the key detective, Colin Ede, said to me, there are at least 10 offenders, and from what the children told their parents, at least 80 children were affected. They say that they were taken to places where they were abused by Peter Ellis and other people. They say that they were filmed, and they say that they were subject to abuse, systematic abuse by numbers of men. I asked, but what do you base it on? What do you really base it on, apart from the children? That's all I base it on. That's what the whole case is based on, and there is nothing wrong with that. Just over a week after the woman's arrest and before any court proceedings, Detective Colonide wrote to ACC saying, I believe you can accept to a large extent anything the children have said to their parents about the offending. Up to 126 children were subjected to social welfare disclosure interviews. At the, at the time, $10,000 was available through ACC to victims of sexual abuse. More than 60 claims for a lump sum payment would be made. Over half a million dollars in total was paid out to the crash children. So now we had the police, the therapists, the Department of Social Welfare, ACC on the face of it at least, accepting that the crash children had all been abused. So the four women and Peter ended up in the longest and most gruelling depositions hearing. It went from the beginning of November 1992 to mid-February 1993, and they were committed to trial, all of them. Down the track, though, the women were all discharged. And they believed they were discharged because the Crown case against Peter was going to fail. Because the jury would know how unlikely it all looked that these terribly normal married women with children were meant to be involved in this weird satanic stuff. It was so utterly unbelievable. It was far more believable that a guy with long hair that wore eyeliner, had long fingernails, was an abuser, and he was openly gay after all. So Peter had to face the wolves alone. It was a bittersweet moment when the four women, still traumatised and heavily in debt from legal costs, were filmed popping champagne for our cameras after their discharge. Not only had they lost their jobs, their careers, their reputations and their savings, they also acquired debts of over $30,000 to the Legal Aid Fund and about $50,000 to the law firm Wynne Williams. Years later, they were still paying the debts off. Jan Buckingham, one of them, was still paying it off when she died. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As we know, Peter ended up being found guilty, convicted of 16 charges involving seven children, and Judge Williamson famously said at his sentencing in June 1993, when he looked at Peter, he said, the jury's verdicts were obviously correct. He said, the jury disbelieved you, they believed the children, and I agree with that assessment. I remember Peter's mother outside the court, she was wearing a cream jacket and a matching cream polo neck shirt and a knee-length fawn skirt when I asked her her reaction to Peter's 10-year sentence and she simply said, as you saw before in the video, I prayed. From prison, Peter wrote to me, he would send me little drawings, mostly of animals, but he was deeply concerned about the state of the prisons. I'm quoting one of his letters here. I'll say it again. Jails are full of a failed mental health system, an ever-increasing failing education system, and an assortment of bewildered people zapped by laws they don't understand. That was in 1993. He set up a library, taught prisoners how to sign their names, some to read, and organised loads of presents so fathers had something to give their kids at Christmas. He was pretty naughty though, and I remember once him writing to me about David Bain when he arrived in prison. He told me that he went up to David Bain and said, it's nice to meet you. I don't mind being your friend, David, but don't treat me like one of the family. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether I should tell you that. He would always sign off each letter, an innocent man, after the Billy Joel song. His first ray of hope was at his first Court of Appeal hearing in 1994. The star complainant, the girl described as the most credible and compelling witness, the girl that they said they would never have had a case without her because she was the oldest and most compelling, as I said, the same girl who had lawyers, social workers and police visiting her house, the Crown Prosecutor even, who was put through six specialist interviews and extremely invasive medical examinations, who was given toys and fast food as a reward for her disclosures. And she was told she was such a good witness, she just about single-handedly put a bad man in jail. Yes, her. Well, she retracted her statement in 1994. She said she'd made it all up. <coughs> You'd think it would unleash Peter's path to exoneration, but what actually happened was the Crown sent a senior barrister to assess whether she was genuine in her retraction. Not a child psychologist, not a social worker, not even a school teacher. A middle-aged, three-piece suit-wearing senior barrister. Devastatingly, and not surprisingly, she was not believed. The barristers told the Crown that their key witness, who was no longer key, that she was in denial. The appeal was dismissed. In 1997 we did a story about the role Detective Colonie played and the jury, which was key to getting a second Court of Appeal hearing. In November 1997, I looked deeper into the Alice case and the role of the key detective, Colin Ede. This investigation would provide the impetus for a second appeal. Peter Alice's downfall was closely linked to this man, former Christchurch detective Colin Ede. Ede's critics believe he was a man obsessed, hell-bent on putting Alice behind bars. It's now emerged that Colin Ede was fighting for his own mental stability at the time. Uh, I felt almost burnt out, um, pretty close to it, uh, before the crash case started. Uh, by the time it had finished, I was um, beyond repair. Do you think that you were always objective in this case? Objective. It may have appeared that at times 
I was lacking ob objectivity. In fact, it was put to me in um, cross-examination. That you had it in for Peter Ellis? Mm. And you were going to get him come hell or high water? Yes. Yes, that was, that was the way that, it, that I guess some people saw it. Is that the way it was? It was the way the evidence went, and I went with the evidence. Have you got any comment at all? No, I'm sorry, I can't make a comment. I was the person who dealt with the parents, the children, the doctors, the interviewers, the psychologists. Uh, so I guess I did all the, the family side of things. We also revealed Colonide Proposition, the mother of the child who made the first formal disclosure about Peter Ellis. Is there anything that you want to tell us about her? No. That's a fairly heavy accusation for someone that was in the position that you were in. Look, I'm not going to discuss it. Are you denying it? No, I'm just not discussing it. Following the trial, he had relationships with two mothers who believed Alice had abused their children. Well, two relationships. Um, sometimes, I guess, you meet people um, that you like. Sometimes relationships come from them. I know how putting this can look, but I'm not prepared to respond to any, any of that. The Peter Ellis affair is fast becoming the Colin Ede affairs. Colin Ede admitted to yet another affair, this time with a social welfare specialist who had a significant role in the investigation. But Ede says that relationship happened after he left the police, some seven months after the Ellis trial. In the week after that story aired, the police commissioner announced an internal investigation into Colin Ede. That same report also raised questions about the impartiality of two jury members in Alice's original trial. Firstly, there was the jury foreman. This is the marriage certificate of Crown Prosecutor Brent Stanaway. It's signed by the minister who performed Stanaway's marriage ceremony. That minister was the foreman of the jury. There is another jury member whose impartiality could be questioned. This jury member was living in a relationship. Her partner worked in a small Christchurch building and shared the same office. In fact, she sat across the desk from a complainant child's mother. I'm going to jump forward now to um, a couple more video clips. This one's more legal. It's, it involves Lindy Hood, the author, and it kind of illustrates a no-win situation with the courts and the case. Once I really got into this case and I kept looking to find out what the allegations were based on and the harder I looked the more it was like turning over stones and finding there was just moisture that evaporated you know when you when they got in the sun there was just nothing there but there was huge amounts of evidence of prejudice and delusion. I mean, that just piled up everywhere. Um, so I found myself in the very uncomfortable position of going, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. After about 200 pages, I lost count of how many professionals whose reputation you'd smeared. Well, what I was trying to do was to explain how the crash case happened and why it happened and what happened. And to do that, I had to show who did what when and how it all fitted together. And that involved naming names. Do you think careers will be destroyed by your book? Well, bureaucrats could be remarkably resilient. And then I said no and I... Hood goes on to analyse how the children came to give evidential interviews in the first place, the techniques used to interview the children and the escalation of the child abuse industry. Huge resources of the state that went into it. I mean, it was a real growth industry there. It all added to a juggernaut, says Hood, that steamrolled Peter Alice. He probably couldn't have got a fair trial anywhere in the country at that time. Because? Because he was... had been pilloried through the media as the most heinous child offender in New Zealand history.
and nowhere more so than in Christchurch. Hood is critical of the now deceased Justice Williamson, the presiding judge in the Alice High Court trial. There's no question he was a, a much respected, very fine judge, but along with a lot of other people, um, this one, yeah, I don't think he got right. Do you think he was not objective? Yeah, I'm sure he thought he was doing, he genuinely believed he was doing good and being fair. Um, but by my analysis, he wasn't. The Alice case was referred to the Court of Appeal, not once, but twice. It was during Lindley Hood's research on the second hearing, she says she made perhaps her most explosive finding. Basically, what the Court of Appeal has done is to make sure they never have to go back and look at a case and say, have we made a mistake here? They just, they've, Parliament has repeatedly passed laws saying, we want miscarriages of justice dealt with better. We want the Court of Appeal to go back and correct their own mistakes. And as soon as Parliament passes a law saying that, the Court of Appeal immediately passes a judgment of its own saying, we are not going to go back and look at our mistakes. We're only going to look at new evidence. You can show us new evidence and we might change a previous verdict. So when it came to Peter Alice's second Court of Appeal hearing... There wasn't anything new to say about the crash case. All you could say is, look at this evidence. For these reasons, it's unbelievable. Look at Alice's trial. For all these reasons, it wasn't fair. Now, you've got to agree that he's been wrongly convicted. And they just said, we don't want to know that. We just want to know... Have you found a smoking gun? Have you found something that we can, without losing face, I suppose, um, overturn the verdict? So this goes much wider than Alice and much wider than sexual abuse cases. It, it goes to the entire criminal justice system. In 2000, the Justice Minister at the time, Phil Goff, ordered a ministerial inquiry. Retired Chief Justice Sir Thomas Eichelbaum was given the job. He would spend 400 hours investigating the case. And in 2001, Goff delivered Alice and his team more bad news. The case advanced by Mr Alice fails to meet the test identified earlier it fails by a distinct margin. I have not found this anything like a borderline judgment. As Opposition Minister of Justice in 1997, he had led the attack in Parliament over the government's handling of the case. Yeah, that's true. In 2003, I went back to him and asked why, now that he was the Minister of Justice, would he not order a wide-ranging inquiry when he had the power and position to do so? I have never suggested that a Royal Commission of Inquiry should be held to find the question of guilt or innocence. Never has been in this country, never should be. My responsibility is to ensure that the justice system works fairly, that it operates as it ought, and that it is not subject to outside uh, opinion. We do not have... We do not have justice in this country determined by public opinion polls. But Mr Goff, the reason that there is a public outcry up and down this country is that this whole case has not been looked at. The High Court, two Court of Appeals, Eichelbaum's report, they have been confined, restricted all the way along. They've been constricted to the question of Peter Alice's guilt or innocence. Why do you think, then, that 11 QCs, that 11 law professors and a raft of psychology professors have put their name to the petition for a Royal Commission Well, I think they're genuinely concerned about whether justice was done in this case. But, of course, the decision about whether somebody was properly convicted is made first by a jury, led by a trial judge, Secondly, by the Court of Appeal. 
The idea of a commission of inquiry is not new. At the second Court of Appeal hearing in 1999, a full bench of judges said some aspects of the Kreish case would be better examined by a commission of inquiry. The Court of Appeal was absolutely unequivocal in the finding that there had been no miscarriage of justice. You, you must accept that. They said that there were other aspects in terms of uh, the collation of evidence from children that might benefit from a commission of inquiry, something that was outside their ambit. Never once did the Court of Appeal suggest that without that material, the question of the safety of the convictions was in doubt. Four times they said there are issues here that would be better served at a commission of inquiry. And, and, of course, there was an inquiry. Sir Thomas Eichelboom carried... A narrow inquiry. Exactly the inquiry that the Court of Appeal suggested might be done. They suggested a commission of inquiry. Isn't there a difference? Uh, there is a difference, but there is nothing that Sir Thomas Eichelboom wasn't able to do that the commission of inquiry could. But the fact is the inquiry done by former Chief Justice Sir Thomas Eichelboom didn't look at the big picture, so to speak which is why the petition asked for a wide-ranging royal commission. He said that this case of any potential miscarriage failed by a distinct margin. He had not found it anywhere near a borderline judgment. Mr Goff, he didn't even speak to the family or the child who retracted. The child who was the oldest witness. She was the most credible witness. She said... It didn't well, happen. Well, let's, let's create some balance to what you've just said. In fact, the Court of Appeal looked at the evidence uh, put forward and then retracted by the child witness. They established a senior barrister to interview that child and to advise the court on the safety of the retraction. So here's a girl, the oldest and most compelling witness against Alice, who says she made it all up. Now, wouldn't you think that she or her parents would be the first people you'd go to for any subsequent inquiry. The statement is from her father. Our daughter is now 20. She is adamant that she was not abused by Peter Ellis. Since retracting at the age of 11, she's been consistent in this. She says she made it all up because at the time she felt under pressure from interviewers and from the whole situation. As parents, we too felt under pressure, especially when the Crown Prosecutor personally came to our house to convince us to be part of the prosecution. The conduct of the police officer in charge, Detective Colin Ede, also worried us. It is very surprising to us that we were not interviewed for the ministerial inquiry. In fact, in the nine years since our daughter's retraction, no one from the Justice Department has ever talked to us about the case. Do you think Eichelbaum should have gone to the non-complainant children or the child that retracted? He went to all the others. What Eichelbaum did, I think, was appropriate. He went to those on whose evidence Peter Ellis had been convicted. And don't worry about the people that say it didn't happen. We're not going to look at that. Oh, look, but that's some the people, issue some here, people, isn't it? That course, is the issue. Course. That you will only some look people at this, say it you happened. Look at some people say that it didn't happen. I think that it's easy in the middle of a kind of political and legal shit show to forget about the kids. And I think last year I interviewed that girl who retracted and I think it was like, apart from Peter Alice dying, it was like the biggest gut punch of all because she was just so profoundly affected. And I do personally believe that the, the Crown would really have struggled, you know, because I, I was in all the court hearings, they would have really struggled um, without her because she was at school at the time, she was a lot older and without her everyone else's evidence looked really, really flimsy. I guess when, when everything happened it was a couple of years before I came out and said that it didn't happen, you know? So uh, those two years were... Mm, those two years were really rough because I knew that what, uh, I guess, I was often told that my testimony was the strongest testimony, that I was the reason that he was put into jail, that... And... So, yeah. I guess, like, it was just living with a lot of guilt, you know?
year after Peter Ellis had been sent to prison, Ruby, not her real name, admitted she had not been indecently assaulted by Ellis. In fact, she had not been abused in any way at all. Her testimony had been crucial to the Crown case as she was the oldest and most compelling of the 13 children who gave evidence against him. Then if it wasn't for you, did you think he may not be in jail? Is that how you saw it when you were little? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. You were like eight and nine years old and you were feeling this terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember it really well. <laughs> I mean, that, that whole year, uh, or however long it was, I was feeling really bad about it and feeling really guilty. Ruby's retraction caused shockwaves throughout the legal system. We are by no means satisfied that this girl did lie at the interviews and in her evidence, although she may now genuinely think she did. They didn't believe me, that they said that I was just in so much trauma that I, I don't know if they said that I'd forgotten it happened or that I was just trying to block it out or, but anyway, they didn't believe me. So I want to show you some, um, some video stories. I've got them here. And this is particularly what I want mm -hmm. you to look at. Colin Eade believes the reason the child said she lied was simply because she didn't want to be involved anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it was a true recanting. Until now, Ruby has never watched or read anything about the Christchurch civic crash case. It was simply too difficult for her to deal with. This is the first time she has seen stories from the past, including what the police said about her retracting. It just means that she's wanting to say, look, it didn't happen. Her parents believe her now? Well, I stand by what I say in relation to her, to her um, original statements in, in the interviews. Do you agree, though, Mr E, that perhaps they might know their daughter better than you? They may do. Well, of course they do. But in relation to that complaint, who knows what's going on around their withdrawal of, of sorry, the child's withdrawal. In all of these years, has anyone from Crown Law, from the Ministry of Justice, come and said, hey, you recanted. Can we have a conversation? No, never. And adding to a rather confusing picture at the time was a prevailing or perhaps convenient view that recanting wasn't all that unusual. It does happen a lot with child complainants that to some, some extent or other they withdraw or they try to withdraw from what's happened. So has it happened in the crash case? Yes. With about how many children? Well, I'm not sure how many, but I'd be surprised if, if not all of them have done it at some stage. So you're telling me that you wouldn't be surprised if, if the children that convicted Peter Ellis have since turned around and said, look, this didn't happen? At some stage. Children know how to lie, you know. Children know how to please adults. Children know what to do to get a reaction or to get a reward. And it was very obvious what people wanted to hear, you know, and when I did say what they wanted to hear, there was kind of, oh, I'd go and get some new clothes, or I don't really know. <laughs> so you would get a reward? Yeah. Just recently, you know, like I can remember I got this seal and I just recently threw it away. <laughs> you got it after one of these interviews? Yeah. <laughs> Now, this is a bit rough, this question, mm -hmm. but do you remember that they even went as far as giving you a medical examination? Yes, I remember this. I mean, I think, like, yeah, I've blocked a lot of it up, but no, I do remember that. It was basically, like, what if a woman has to have a pap smear or something like this? It was something along those lines. I remember my mum being quite upset too. Yeah. She told me that she had to kind of hold you down, basically. Yeah, I don't remember this. Mm. Like, I just feel, I feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt about that. Um, I mean, just that I was involved in the whole thing. It's not nice <laughs> to be, to have been such a big part of it. 
So you couldn't see the kind of whole industry around it, like the police, the social workers, the parents? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand. Certainly my parents were pulled into it, that I was pulled into it. Like, I, I understand this logically, but emotionally maybe not. I wish I'd seen him before he died. I wish I'd talked to him. Um, yeah. It would have been nice to say sorry to him. Sorry that I was part of it. Do you know that in all the interviews I did with Peter Ellis, you know the one thing he always said is, I do not blame the children. Mm -hmm. The children are victims of the system, meaning the social workers, yeah. the police. Yeah. And there's this one you know, quote that I always remember him saying, and that is, I hope that one day, and he was crying. I hope one day that they're actually going to be prepared to come along and say, hello, Peter. Can you tell me, did we get it wrong? And I'll tell them, they got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely got it wrong. Mr Ellis died before the appeal hearing. The release of this court's judgment marks the end of a long and painful journey through the courts for the many people involved in this case. The formal orders of the court are, the applications to adduce further evidence are granted, the appeal is allowed, the convictions of the appellant are quashed. I often feel like the Alice case was just how 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 do you fight it? When it comes to the Crown, they have all the money, they have all the lawyers, they have all the resources. And people like Peter, they get refused legal aid, they're in prison, they've got a guilty conviction. And you and and it's like who's there? I mean it's why we kind of end up with it, but honestly we I think we need to team up because we're not lawyers although we may as well be sometimes. We're, we get enough letters from them. <laughs> but, you know, over my decades of reporting, I've come to see the Crown as, like, agents for the prevention of the truth in so many of the cases that I'm doing. You know, whether it's the Oranga Tamariki uplift story in Hastings, the state abuse cases, the historic state abuse cases, the Lockie Jones case in Gore, the dioxin contamination from Agent Orange... It doesn't seem to be about what really happens or happened. It's, it feels like it's more about ego and reputational damage and winning and losing. You know, and how do cases like the crash case, all these decades on, happen again and again in their own way? I mean, collective delusion, it plagued us then and it plagues us now. It is like fighting a monster. And I wonder, you know, are we actually awake or are we choosing to be half asleep, or do we just not care? You know, I'm so grateful to Peter Ellis because he taught me never to give up, never to stop fighting. And to make sure you stay the right. For more award-winning journalism that matters, head to newsroom.co.nz. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe. Please rate and review our series. It helps new listeners find us. Check out our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Melanie Reed Investigates. This episode is produced and presented by me, Melanie Reed. Edited by Paul Entercott. Original music by H. Pryor. Also written and co-produced by Bonnie Sumner. This is a newsroom production, funded through Aotearoa, New Zealand, on air.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.